0: Welcome to the NC4 podcast. We exist to know Christ and make him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. Good morning, once again, everyone. Our reading for today begins in John chapter 8, 30. As he was saying these things, many people believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, You'll be free indeed. I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet, do not, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died, and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I'd be a liar like you, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself blind and went out of the temple. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Wash in the pool of Siloam,' which means sent. "'So he went and washed and came back, seeing. "'The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, "'Is this not the man who used to sit and beg?' "'Some said, "'It is he.' "'Others said, "'No, but it's someone like him.' "'But he kept saying, "'I am the man.' "'So they said to him, "'Then how were your eyes opened?' He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the disciples said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who's a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. Some of the Pharisees, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already, and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to be his disciples too, do you? And they reviled him, saying, You're his disciple. We're disciples of Moses. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us. And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Here ends the reading of God's word. It's powerful to be reading through the scriptures at length together, um, at least for me. It's maybe not something that we'll do every time, but we thought it was important for this uh, to really root and ground ourselves and make sure that we read the whole book that we're studying together. And so today's the sixth, method, uh, sixth message in our series that you may believe, looking at the Gospel of John. And with every portion that we're reading, the interpretive question that's going to help us get to the bottom of what John is all is talking about is, how does this passage point to true life in Jesus? Because remember, John says, I'm writing these things so that you may believe and that you may have life in Jesus' name. And so last week, Julius Asunge gave us this masterful teaching on John chapter 8. Uh, and if you've missed any of the weeks, you can go back and watch them online or uh, listen to them on our on our podcast. And uh, in John chapter 8, Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. We're looking at Jesus' signs and his I am statements. And so today, as we focus on John chapter 9, uh, in the fifth sign, um, Jesus repeats those words again. It says, as he repeats, I am the light of the world, that's when he healed the man. And it's, it's so profound that as the man hears those words and goes and washes, he sees light for the first time. And so Jesus here, he's using an instance of physical blindness to teach us something about spiritual blindness. And the question, I think, running through this whole sign is this. If Jesus is the light of the world, what exactly does he enable us to see? And if Jesus is the light of the world how is it that not everybody sees him? So the title of the message today is Healing the Sighted. And we're going to see three things. The compassion to see others, the humility to see ourselves, and the grace to see Jesus. All right, so let's begin with our first point. The compassion to see others. So we've picked up the story sometime after the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, that was spoken about last week. And Jesus and his disciples, they, you know, they've had this run-in uh, with, with um, the, the crowd of Judeans there. And um, Jesus leaves the temple. And so they're walking along, and they come across a man with congenital blindness. He was born blind. So his disciples say, look, a case study in the problem of pain. All right, so they look to the side of the road, and voila, it's a ready-made sermon illustration for their next talk, uh, and the talk is called, You Reap What You Sow. Now, we naturally, in the, in the face of any suffering, in the face of any evil, we naturally search for explanations. We're going to talk more on the, the problem of pain and, and, and evil uh, in the, the the passage on the resurrection of Lazarus. But there's a really important point to catch here. And I think what you see in the disciples here is that our first instinct many times when we see other people suffering, right? When it's us suffering, we tend to have a little more grace, right? Why do I deserve this, right? But when it's other people suffering, we can very quickly jump to the conclusion, well, they must have had something to do with this, you know? They or their family, you know the family they come from, right? You remember Job's super helpful friends, right? <laughs> So we know from Scripture that that's, that's not, the right, first, that's not the, right, the right first assumption to make, and it's not the first time that Jesus has to set his disciples straight on this. They also talk about, uh, I, f- I forget the name of the tower, a tower that falls, and um, uh, I think it was Siloam, actually, wasn't it? Interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Um, but Jesus tells his disciples uh, a couple times look, you're off base with that assumption. How so? Now, if you notice, Jesus doesn't refute the general principle that you reap what we sow. How could he? That's very biblical, right? And obviously, particular sins are sometimes directly to blame, to blame for particular sufferings that we go through. But what Jesus refutes—so he doesn't refute the general principle. What he refutes is the reductionism, Right? The ability to draw a clear line between A and B. He refuses to turn this man into a sermon illustration. He refuses to turn him into a moral principle. And where the disciples saw a case study, Jesus saw him. Jesus saw a man. Another general thing that we do know is that sin is ultimately the cause of all evil and suffering in the world. And that's true generally. But the problem is when you try and take general principles and apply them to every particular circumstance. That's what we call a reductionism. And what happens is when you, when you practice reductionism, it leads to false conclusions. And the sad thing is that people, when it's applied to people, they get dehumanized in the process. You begin treating them as just a theory. (laughs) And I remember my, it made me think of our uh, visit to to India a few years ago, and I'd heard so much about the the traditional Hindu caste system, uh, where there's a lot of suffering that there's virtually no compassion towards because it's undergirded by a theological belief that is, because of reincarnation, the idea is, you've heard of the idea of karma, that in that belief system, because of karma, you you reap what you sow, and if you're reborn into suffering, it's because you did something in a previous life to put you there. And so you really shouldn't help such people because they deserve it. Now, that's, that's a massive oversimplification, but that's, that's what ends up happening when you have a society that's built on that theological principle. And so, in case you think, I think this is just another, you know, other worldviews problem, it's not, because Jesus is correcting biblical worldview people here, and so that applies to us just as, just as much. And so Jesus confronts this reductionism of a, of a person even though the disciples are operating within a biblical worldview. And actually, if you take it as a case study, it's quite an interesting one. Because remember, this man is born blind. Right? Jews do not believe in reincarnation. So how could he have deserved what happened to him? Are they saying that he sinned in the womb? Somehow, Or are they saying that this is the God visiting the sins of the fathers on the sons? And so the rabbis went back and forth about this. And they, they would argue kind of ad nauseum about this. But Jesus says both of those things miss the point. What is standing before, sitting and begging before you is not a theorem, is not a theological conundrum, but a person, a human being, He's an image bearer of God. And his role, Jesus, and the role of us as his followers, he says, is to do the works of God whenever we encounter evil and suffering. He says that the point is not getting to the reasons behind why this happened. The point is when you encounter evil, it's doing the works of God. Yeah? And so why can Jesus see this and not them? Well, I think throughout this passage, there's this interplay between what you could call natural light and supernatural light. And I think a lot of times we think of natural and supernatural as opposed. Don't think of them as opposed. Think of them as one being a higher dimension than the other. Has anyone heard of Francis Schaeffer? Okay. He was a a Christian apologist and philosopher that was uh, very well known in the 70s and 80s, especially and uh, he used to say that we live in a two-story universe. So on the bottom floor is the finite material world. This is what you call nature, the natural world. But on the upper floor is um, meaning, value, purpose. And this is supernatural. It's, it's above the natural, super meaning above. And so some would say, it's a very common belief, started with David Hume, that Super, the supernatural is a violation of the natural. But it's no more a violation of the natural than a cube is a violation of a square. A cube contains squares, but it's a higher dimension. It contains depth, where a square just contains, you know, um, it's, it's a it, 2D, right? It's a higher dimension. There's no sense of contradiction. And so... Um, Schaefer says, if you only live on the bottom floor, life is ultimately absurd. If all you acknowledge is the material, the natural universe, then human existence has no essential meaning, no essential value or purpose because you can't derive those things from purely material things. The best you can do, and this is what the best materialist philosophers will tell you how to live your life, you have to make up your own purpose in life. You have to, because life ultimately is absurd, you have to inject purpose into your own life. Which is great. That's, that's a wonderful way to live, until you have a dictator who thinks they have a better vision for how your life should go. Now how do you judge between what is right and wrong? What is actually the purpose and meaning and value of a human life? There's no way to arbitrate when all you're living is in that bottom floor. When nature is informed by supernature, when natural light is informed by supernatural light, that's the only way that we can arrive at meaning, value, and purpose. And so that's why we can say the next point here is that Jesus' light reveals our true value. Jesus' light reveals our true value. When you're speaking purely by natural light, all you can say, the best you can say about humanity is that we're a particularly complex accidental, carbon-based life form. Which is wonderful. There's a lot of glory in that. Uh, you know, you can watch lots of uh, documentaries uh, with, with deep British voices, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, David Attenborough, and there's, it, there's, there's an incredible amount of beauty and glory purely in the natural, right? But you can't get from what is to what ought to be. That, that's, a, that's a jump. And so... <laughs> If you're purely speaking by natural light, all we are at base is a particularly complex carbon-based life form. So how do you determine the value of such a life form? Well, what you're left with is that the value is determined by what that life form can contribute to the species or contribute to society. How strong they are, how beautiful they are, how how talented they might be. Where does that leave a man like the man in this story, born blind, whose fate in life is condemned to begging on the side of the street? Well, you don't have to be a great scholar of history to know where that ends up. Let the horrors of eugenics and Nazism and the Holocaust teach you where that kind of reasoning leads but let's bring it home a little bit more because this is not just a problem out there. These are problems that we're talking about in the human heart. And it made me think of, I don't know if any of you um, have ever lived in a place where there are a lot of people in need and especially maybe people um, begging on the streets and, and living in a few different European cities. Um, that's been the case for my family. And the deeply convicting thing is that you can very subtly begin to train yourself not to see them. You may go to a place as a tourist and you say, wow, there's so much need here. How can people live here with all of this need around them? And it's because you begin to tune it out. And you begin simply to not even see it anymore. And so what happens in that case is that you're actually tuning out the human value and human worth of these people. And very often, you can use the excuse, well, it's their fault. If they wanted to do something about it, they could. And that becomes an excuse, and it gets us off the hook. But what happens when you view humanity through God's light? Through Jesus' light? What we see... And you can't get this any other way except supernatural light is to say that every human being is made in the image of God. It's one of the first things that we find out about humanity that God created. It's made in his image. And so every single person has an innate value and glory that nothing can take away. Even the most broken person on the face of the earth has the image of God within them. And so that is the foundation. It's really, when, when, you, when you study things like human rights and all these things that everyone you know, is so passionate about, you can't get there except by a supernatural foundation. This is the only basis for such a thing if we believe in it. And so at this point, I, I want to I address the most serious shortcoming of this series so far, which is that there's not even been one C.S. Lewis quote. <laughs> not even one. So, I'm very disappointed with myself. Yeah, I repent. But here's what he says, um, uh, talking of the weight of glory that's in humanity. It says, it may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It's hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it. And the backs of the proud will be broken. And so that brings us to our second point. The humility to see ourselves. Because as the story carries on, um, this this newly sighted man, he... he, (laughs) He suffers the indignity of being questioned over and over again. Nobody believes him, right? And I, I, I got to say, you know, we've been studying all these different signs and all the different people within these stories, and I really love this guy. He comes across as such a character to me. And it's, it, I mean, it's testament to John's genius as a writer to bring that across. It's such a contrast to the paralytic that we met in chapter 5 was kind of sniveling and self-seeking and this guy he's 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 sarcastic he's brilliant you know he's he's funny and he turns the tables on the pharisees this beggar puts challenges to them that they can't answer they're 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 reduced to just calling him names right and so after the fourth time of being asked the same questions he starts playing games with them and they're asking, supposedly under the guise of trying to get to the truth, right? They're investigating. They're trying to get to the truth. But, but what he eventually finds out is they're, they're not interested in truth at all. And it makes me think of, um, uh, there's a leadership consultant called Peter Block, and he talks about uh, when, when you're casting a new vision and you're constantly being asked the same questions, even after clarifying and clarifying and clarifying, you're constantly being asked the same questions. What's happening is the person is no longer seeking clarification. It's a veiled form of resistance. They don't agree with the vision, right? And so by the fourth time that he's being asked the same questions, um, he, he eventually sees that they're not looking for understanding. They're refusing to understand. And so the question to the disciples was, "Can you see this man?" And I think the question for the disciples becomes, uh, for the for the Pharisees, is, "Can you see yourselves?" So the man born blind obviously had a big problem, right? Everyone could see this man had a big problem in his life. But the suggestion here is that even worse than being blind is being blind to the fact that you're blind. There's something worse than being blind and it's being blind to the fact that you're blind. If you can't see, but don't know that you can't see, that's even worse. Now, a lot of you know, I, I grew up in a ministry called Battelle that helps people. Um, it, it, it's, it's disciple-making among drug addicts. And um, in case you think that's all fun and games, you know, people in addiction are not their best selves, let's just say. <laughs> they're not living their best life now. Um, they're difficult. And um, it's not a walk in the park working with difficult people, and many of you know that if you work in healthcare or you work in, you know, uh, uh, there's, there's many different ways uh, that you come across that, but... At least in the case of the kind of people I grew up with in Battelle, everyone knew they had a problem. It's pretty obvious, right? And so you you quickly find out that there's actually hope for this person once they're able to see that they do in fact have a problem. That's the first thing that you got to look for because if they don't see it, nothing's going to happen. But once they do see it, there's hope for them you know some of the hardest people to reach in the world? It's not the drug addicts and the prostitutes. It's not the unreached people groups, per se, although there's, there's, there's great challenges and difficulties with that, of course. It's not, you know, the developing world. It's the well-off, the comfortable those who think they already know. And this is really the unique challenge that Christians in the, the, the West um, really face. It's the unique challenge of how do you do missions in a largely post-Christian Western world? Because here's the thing, you can't teach someone what they think they already know. Oh, it's this. I'm just going to do that. I thought it was some sort of animal. <laughs> Someone's like, ooh, lunch. Right? <laughs> the hardest people to reach are the ones that think they already know, because you can't teach someone what they think they already know. And there's an increasing amount of people in our part of the world who think they know what Christianity is all about. And they've rejected it. And the reality is, the vast majority of people that you'll encounter that think that are actually quite ignorant about what this good news is, or they've been very misled. And so, what about the people who think that they know and they think they've accepted it? Well, most of the time, I think you'll find that what they've accepted is what's called moralistic, therapeutic deism, which if you, if, you, if you boil it down, it's this. This is the worldview. I'm a good person, therefore God will make me comfortable. Yeah? That's why it's therapeutic. And it's deism because God's not really involved in any other way except to make me happy. And when he doesn't make me happy, I get angry at him. But so... So in, in, in the Greek, that translates to be a nice middle-class person. <laughs> and the thing that's hard about convincing a middle-class person that they're a sinner is that so much of being middle-class is about being respectable, being a good citizen, right? And so huh, Jesus tells us this is, these are some of the things that make it so hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And it's not, it's not really to do with the riches themselves. It's to do with the heart attitude that says, I'm fine on my own. I understand the way the world works. I don't need you very, thank you very much. Right? What do I need saving from? And so that's why Jesus knew that affluent and morally respectable people are some of the hardest people to reach with good news because they assume it only applies to other people. And so here's the thing. The next slide here. Jesus' light reveals our true sickness. Blaise Pascal said that humanity is this astonishing contradiction. We have both this indescribable greatness and we have this unimaginable wretchedness within us. And Jesus actually shows us both. He shows us we're made in the image of God, and yet that image has been broken terribly by sin. And so when you stand in his light, you see both. You see, look at the glory of humanity restored in the image of God in Jesus. But then if you begin to look at yourself in that light, it reveals just how sick we are before him. And it's a bit like, huh, I don't know if you've ever gotten all dressed up, maybe for a wedding or some big occasion you get all dressed up, and you've got your, your kind of like low, nice lighting in your bathroom. And you're like, yeah, I look great, right? And then you step out into the sun, and it's like, whoa. <laughs> you know, this, the, the, the sunlight reveals all the blemishes. It reveals all the little stains and, the, you know, the, 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 the pit sweat and, the, you know. <laughs> or maybe another example would be you're playing pickup basketball and, you know, you're the best player on the court like Phil and uh, you feel amazing. <laughs> you know, And you're just killing it, right? And then, Michael Jordan turns up. (laughs) Hey guys, can I play, you know? And (laughs) as soon as you're in the presence of actual greatness, you begin to see the reality of who you are and what you offer. You begin to see your own mediocrity. And so, this is why Jesus said, I came into the world for judgment. And you say, wait, Jesus, didn't you just say in chapter 3, I did not come into the world to condemn the world, right? Well, yes. But here's the thing. Because Jesus is the, the source of salvation, that's his purpose in coming. It says God loved the world, so he sent his son, right? So that we could have eternal life. But in that very same coming, He's also a source of judgment. Why? John 3.15 says, as Moses, list, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may not be condemned. Oh, sorry, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And it goes on to say, uh, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And it's a, reference, it's a reference back to Numbers 21, where Moses lifts up the, the bronze serpent, and to be healed, the people needed to look at it. But if they didn't look at it, that serpent became a symbol of the serpent that was biting their heels and was judgment. And so the same symbol. Jesus on the cross, if you look to him for salvation, it's a symbol of life. It's a symbol of forgiveness. It's a symbol of freedom. And yet, that very same symbol, if you turn away from it, becomes a symbol of judgment. It becomes a symbol of the seriousness of the condemnation of of sin. And so he gives us the freedom to respond to this. And it's like a doctor who, in order to give us the cure, he first has to tell us, you're sick. If you don't do something about this, you're going to die. If that's true, that's the most loving thing the doctor can do for you. And so he gives us the freedom to respond to this. And Pascal said, in faith, there's enough light for those who want to believe, and there's enough shadows to blind those who don't. And so through, through healing a blind man who knows he can't see, he speaks to the spiritually blind who think that they can see. And that brings us to the third and final section here. The, the scripture reading does not count as part of my time, okay, all right? So I'm within my window here, guys, all right? <laughs> Alright, the resolution of this story, it it comes after this man who has, he's he's not only suffered terribly because of his disability through his life, watch what happens to him. He's betrayed by his neighbors. They turn him in to the Pharisees, right? Um, He's abandoned by his parents. And then he's villainized by the establishment, and they kick him out. He began as an outcast, he ends up as an outcast. And it says, Jesus, when he heard that he was cast out, he went to him. Jesus again finds the man. And remember, he has no idea what he looks like because Jesus, when he healed him, he sent him away to wash, right? And when he came back, Jesus was gone. So the man has still never seen Jesus, he sends him to the pool of Siloam. And it's interesting that that is the same word that's used in the prophecy of Genesis 49 that says um, the scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. In Greek, that's Siloam. And so John tells us it means sent. Jesus is saying, I am the sent one. That Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, uh, Moses, David were waiting to see I am the one and I love when he tells him you have now seen him it's funny all these sighted people in this passage and the, the formerly blind man is the only one that sees Jesus really sees him And what happens? The man bows down and worships him. So, it's, notice, this guy still had some questionable theology, all right? He didn't fully understand who Jesus was. He did not know that he was bowing before the second person of the eternal Trinity. You know, how was it that he was able to see him truly for who he was, but the Pharisees who knew Scripture were good, respectable people couldn't see it? Or refuse to see it? And the answer, I think, is grace. James 4, 6 says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And just as this blindness, the blindness was no fault of his own, his sightedness was no merit of his own. The only thing that he did was receive it from Jesus. Jesus took the initiative at every step, Right? And so what that tells us is that the only reason that anyone can see Jesus is by grace. It's a miracle. Because our hearts are naturally prideful and resistant to God. If you find yourself looking to Jesus and you find him beautiful and you want to bow down and worship him, that is a miracle of a changed heart. And so what grace does is that it awakens us to an entirely new form of life. And this is what I mean, all right? So as we've been tracking through this gospel, um, there's already been four signs, four miracles. And they've all had to do with restoring life and the senses. I hadn't thought about this until I looked at this. So the restoration of the senses, all right? Taste and smell are restored through turning water into wine and feeding uh, the, the, the 5,000, he restores a sense of touch to the man who couldn't feel his legs, right? He restores a sense of hearing to the nobleman who, uh, who, wanted, to come, who wanted Jesus to come touch uh, his son, and Jesus said, listen to my word. Take my word. And so here we see the sense of sight being restored. And in a sense, one way that you could define what life is is that it's the ability to sense your environment. So every life form, to some extent, has a, a sense of its surroundings, right? So plant life has um, the sense of... it's sensitive to heat and, and cold, and it's sensitive to light and dark, right? Animal life keeps those things and takes it a step further. So animal life has all our five senses. Sight, taste, touch, smell. Um, and hearing human life goes further so humans not only have five physical senses but we have an aesthetic sense we have a sense of beauty of truth of goodness and so you these you see these dimensions being added layer by layer on top of one another they don't contradict one another they go they build on one another and so in the same way jesus shows us a kind of life that's alive even more A a kind of life that's even more alive to our surroundings and it's a supernatural spiritual life. A new dimension of reality. And so the conclusion is this. Jesus' light reveals our true cure. In this fifth sign Jesus again he uses a physical sensation to point to a spiritual sensation. You know To the wedding guests in Cana, he said, you can taste the wine, but can you taste the coming age of the Messiah? To the paralytic, he said, you can feel your legs, but can you walk with me? To the nobleman, he said, you want a touch from me, but will you listen to my voice? To the crowds, he said, you've been satisfied with fish and bread, but are you hungry for the bread of heaven? And now, to those who are blind and yet think they see, he says, will you admit your ignorance and come to me and learn? Or will you let your pride keep you from seeing an entirely new dimension of life? You can't learn what you think you already know. But to those who humble themselves, in John 1 it says, he promises to anyone who does accept him, he gives the right to become a child of God. So in closing, I want to pose a couple challenges to you. I'm going to invite the musicians back up. We're going to to end with another song of, of worship. And it really is a song of worship. And I want to pose a couple challenges to you as we end this. At the start of the year, Uh, Paul Stewart had a a prophetic word that expressed that 2022 is a year for us to clean up our act. And I've seen a lot of that coming through this series. And it also said um, to to allow the light in. And so the first challenge I want to put to you, and you guys can begin playing once you're up. um, If I were to tell you that Jesus is about to shine his light into your life, What's your first reaction? Does that sound like, oh no, what's he going to find? Or does it sound like, wow, what am I going to see? Right? Do you feel scared about what it might reveal? or Are you excited about what new things God might want you to experience? And that reaction will tell you a lot. For the proud... It's a message of judgment. For the humble, though, it's a message of new and higher life. And that can apply to you whether you came to Jesus a long time ago or whether you never have before. If you feel like you're locked in fear and pride that's keeping you from God or maybe it's keeping you from more of God, then the answer is today, don't harden your heart. If you have ears to hear, hear. Come to him. If your heart is drawn, today is the day. We'll have people up here to pray afterwards and come receive prayer. Come, go, go talk to a, a spiritual mentor. Talk to me. Talk to one of our other pastors or elders or, or um, spiritual mothers and fathers here. But second of all, I think we would all do well, as that, that prophecy at the start of the year encouraged us, to um, consider the danger of spiritual pride. Because pride blinds us. That's the, that's the danger of it. And so, I'm going to be asking the Lord, and I hope you'll ask with me, Lord, like the disciples. Is there someone I've trained myself not to see? How can I begin to carry the weight of my neighbor's glory? Lord, give me more compassion to truly see others. And I'm also going to to be asking the Lord, like the Pharisees, Lord, reveal any area of my life where I've become too prideful to learn from you? Show it to me. I don't want to be blind. (laughs) Lord, is there any area where I've become too wise to learn from you? Give me the humility to truly see myself. And lastly, give me the grace, Lord Jesus, to truly see you and to order my life around you. Would you stand with me and pray? Lord Jesus, I I thank you that just like this man, you saw us. You came to us. You sought us out. Lord, I pray for any person here who may not have ever done what this man did and said, Lord, I believe and, and worship you. And if that's you, you can do that right now, right here, today. And come to him and say, Jesus, I'm sorry for my pride I'm sorry for my sin. I humble myself. Jesus, teach me. Thank you that you love me enough that you came and you died for me. And today, I want to accept your free gift of a brand new life and a brand new kind of life. And if you do that today, you step into a totally new reality. And you become, as it says, you gain the right to be called a child of God. And you enter a family. And so we're here to walk that out with you. And if you uh, took that step, or you're praying that for someone else, tell your story. Come and talk to us, because we we, we walk this out together. And Lord Jesus, we thank you um, (laughs) for all of us, Lord. None of us deserved that gift. It's a gift of grace. And so we ask you, those things that we've seen in this passage, Jesus, show us anyone that we may have uh, trained ourselves not to see. Give us the compassion to see others, Lord. Also give us the grace, the humility, to see the true state of where we are. To come to you humbly, Lord, continually, and ask you uh, for greater vision, for greater love, for more of you.